Yeah, on. Listen to that song all the song. Can you listen to that whatever it is all the way through? Revolution number nine. Like, can you actually do it? No. I don't think I can either. You know, I'm I'm kind of a fan of a lot of avant-garde music, and I don't I don't mind things that are a little out there, but there's something about that song and where it falls on that album and and just like the talking over it, and it, yeah, it just it. There's such a thing as bad avant-garde, and I think that uh, falls into that category. I think there's certainly such a thing as bad avant-garde. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just the same as there's, uh, you know, some bad modern art. One time, I when I was living in New York City, I, I you know, I went to the Museum of Modern Art just, you know, just to check it out. It's famous, right? And, uh, you know, I was kind of trying to figure it all out. And at one point, it's kind of in, in some exhibit and on the wall, there were like six people crowded around and everyone was just, everyone was just looking at a stick. There's just like a stick mounted on the wall and everyone was like analyzing it and looking at it. I'm like, it's a freaking stick. It's art, man. Too intelligent for me to understand. Apparently a stick on the wall, but has there is there such a thing as bad Metallica? Because I I'm not sure there is. You know I don't think they've all been winners. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's bad, but there's phenomenal, and then there's you know, all right. Tonight we're going to be exploring what I consider a symphony of metal. And symphony, as defined by Merriam-Webster's, is a musical composition resembling complexity or variety. It certainly wasn't the first prog metal recording, but it was probably the first that hit a wide audience. And I think we can go ahead and say it hit a mainstream audience. I do think it was the first... And one of the few true metal symphonies, at least in the way that I listen to it, we are going to explore Metallica's Injustice for All this evening. This incredibly unique, wonderfully filthy, and truly one-of-a-kind work by this important band. Does that make it a symphony of destruction? Well, speaking of destruction let's destroy our audience with what we're listening to and let's hit them over the head with what's round and round nubs what do you got on the old radar album wise first would be the uh 2014 album from u2 songs of innocence 
I I have an interesting relationship with U2. I tend to like the U2 albums a lot that people hate. So yeah, I I got a weird relationship with U2. I'm very picky about my U2, but this Songs of Innocence album from a few years back is is really good. It's got kind of the atmospheric piece and good songwriting and the whole key is Edge's guitar. I mean, I just I, I think he is just such a wonderful guitarist. I love watching him play, love listening to him play, love his effects. I love his voice. I, I kind of wish that Edge would just like start his own band. <laughs> you know, I think that'd be pretty cool. I think Edge maybe wishes he could start his own band. Yeah, maybe. Too. Maybe. Uh, Rush's Hemispheres just really can never get enough of that album. And then lastly would be uh, a really good prog metal band called Intronaut, who's on Metal Blade Records. Their newest album is called Fluid Existential Inversions. Intronaut's an excellent band in that genre. Really complex music with vocals that are really easy to absorb and outstanding band. I would love to see them live. I'm hoping that maybe after the uh, pandemic, we might be able to arrange for that. But I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to see a live band again. <laughs> oh, come on. You will. You will, buddy. Hang in there. What's running around for you, T? Well, I, I didn't do this on purpose necessarily, but I happen to have three live albums, not the band live, but live albums, <laughs> live performance. And on top of that, they all happen to be from the same year. So why don't I give the albums and let's see if you can guess the year. Okay. You want to play that game? I do. Want to have a little fun? It sounds great. The first one is by Bob Marley and the Wailers. It's, you know, they put out a lot of live work, but I think this is easily their best live album. The song tempos are great. The instrumentation's great. The energy of the crowd and of the band was really in good form at this time. And uh, Babylon by Bus, particularly the uh, positive vibration opener, strong, great set. The second is a nice summer selection for me and a great driving album, Willie and the Family Live. This is Willie Nelson, a double album. Uh, definitely has some of the, you know, country stuff, which I love Willie's country stuff. But this is just as much a sort of more jam band, rock based effort from from willie and the band so willie and the family live if you're going on a long drive you know maybe driving up to northern michigan or whatever it might be pop in willie and the family live i think uh, i think you'll enjoy yourself and the third one relates a little bit to tonight's band and uh it's the the live album is called bursting out and it's by jethro tall you know it, it's pretty rocking and uh in pretty driving you know there th this was a time period where they were kind of you know playing pretty hard it's a it's a really good capturing of of that very very unique band so the version of aqualong on bursting out is just a monster yes. I mean, it shreds yeah no doubt so three live albums actually three of my favorite live albums probably ever all in the same year you want to take a guess See, I know it. And and so you said ah. Mar you said Marley, and I was like, eh, you know, I think maybe I have an idea. When you said Willie and the family, that threw me off a little bit. That took me to another year. 
But once you say Jethro Tull bursting out, you know, I'm a huge Tull fan. And I know that the year you were referring to is 1978. Indeed. Indeed. So a uh, unintentional theme there, but three live albums from 1978 is the way my round and round shook out. Back to our symphony of metal tonight. The, the band Metallica was in a pretty interesting and, and pretty wild place at this stage tragic things that had happened in between master of puppets the previous record and injustice for all the loss of a band member the onboarding of a new band member and what seemed to be you know a pretty decent amount of chaos and confusion and a band that that picks its most vulnerable time to attempt its most ambitious and complex effort. Clearly this was a band that was really evolving and really finding its musicianship and they lost the member that probably was their best musician. And it almost seems like it motivated them to really push the boundaries on what was possible from a complexity standpoint, from a musicality standpoint and what they ended up recording was certainly one of the most unique metal recordings ever. You know, you, you've got the, you've got the prog brain and I'll only continue to say this if you agree and give it your prog stamp of approval. But I think there's no question that this is a progressive metal album and probably one of the, or one of the earliest and one of the most important. It's certainly a prog metal album. The thing about Metallica though, is if you listen to, certainly in Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. I mean, they were doing longer compositions with tempo shifts. Fade to Black is a great example of a a commercial song by Metallica that has this very famous tempo shift and these huge dynamic changes. Justice has an element to it of intentionality with its prog metalness. I think, too, you start to see the band because of the loss of Cliff Burton, I do think that the band got more in the hands of the visionaries of the group. And while I I agree with you that Cliff Burton, I think was the best musician of the four. I don't think he was the, the one with the most vision and the most challenge and scope of the group. There's no question that the nature of this album has a direct tie to what the band went through for the previous three years. Yeah. And if, you know, and and we don't want to spend too much time on the band or the history of Metallica because, you know, obviously that's been well-documented. If anyone is unfamiliar, you know, I think there are two must watches if, if you're interested in a study of Metallica um, and they're both documentaries about the band. The first is a year and a half in the life of Metallica from late 1992. And it's in two parts. The first half documents the recording of the Black Album, which was the follow-up to Injustice for All. And the second follows them on tour, which is where things really get interesting. But it's a great way to really get in-depth with where the band was at at that time, which is relevant to the album we're going to be talking about today since it was the follow-up. And the second is the Some Kind of Monster documentary, uh, which was later, I think that was like in the mid-2000s maybe, which kind of followed them through the recording of St. Anger and through a 
fascinating and somewhat bizarre band therapy process. You know, those are probably two important watches if you're interested in Metallica and and their history uh, in a more in-depth fashion. But, you know, briefly, you know, the band originally made up of four members, James Hetfield, you know, the leader, the front man, the primary songwriter, the voice, Lars Ulrich, I would consider him the co-pilot of this band. <laughs> Lars is an interesting guy. He he was born and raised in Denmark. His father and his grandfather were professional tennis players, and he came to the U.S. to hone his skill because he was pretty damn good and was looking to turn professional. And actually, he decided he wanted to be a drummer. Lars takes some heat. He's not a he's not a great drummer. I mean, you're not going to hear Lars Ulrich talked up there with some of the other more intricate and probably more talented rock and heavy metal drummers of his time. But I do think his his tennis background is interesting because it's almost like he's an athlete playing drums. He's certainly been able to over time play with a lot of speed and and use a lot of double bass action that would be difficult for even some good drummers. So he's an interesting guy with an interesting sound. And I think that his vision and certainly his influence on the band as a whole and on much of the composition, he writes a lot of songs. Primarily, He's a really gifted arranger. Yeah. Yeah. No question. I don't know how much like riffing he does, but he is a phenomenal arranger of songs. He has a good, good idea of song structure and how songs should flow. Yeah, no question. And another interesting thing about Lars, which you and I'll appreciate, is he loves Oasis. He's like a huge Noel Gallagher. And in fact, he he told Noel he wants to drum with his band, his High Flying Birds project at some point in the coming years. But he is a huge Oasis fan, which I think speaks to his musical intelligence a little bit. Yeah, he in a lot of ways, I, I think he is the brains behind the operation and... uh the, the best quote I ever heard about Lars Ulrich, I believe came from Lars Ulrich. And it was that he is absolutely far from the best drummer in the world, but he is the best drummer in the world for Metallica. Yeah. And you know, that happens. I mean, you know, Keith Moon was probably the best drummer for the who in the world. You know, Meg White was probably the best drummer for the white stripes in the world. And the two of them can, I mean, hardly keep time. Right. So. Uh, Kirk Hammett is the lead guitar player. This band has an interesting history where they actually started with Dave Mustaine on the lead guitar. And at one point, we're a five-piece band, I believe, with both Kirk and Dave and James playing guitar. That overlap didn't last very long. There was a falling out with Dave Mustaine. And of course, Dave Mustaine went on to form Megadeth a band that I know uh, you and I are both big fans of. Um, But Kirk really was just the guitar guy. You know, he's a really sweet, easygoing, probably the most likable member of the band all in all. Sometimes his guitar playing gets called into question, mostly by people who can't play the guitar themselves or don't know much about the instrument, but um, obviously has rifled off some incredible work from a lead guitar standpoint. I mean, his solo on the unforgiven from the black album is one of my favorite guitar solos ever performed. And then we get into the bass players and there are actually in a way there are two bass players on this album. 
the first we'll mention is Cliff Burton. Cliff was a, a an original member of the band in 1986 in Sweden as they were touring the Master of Puppets record. The band was in a bus accident and the bus flipped over and Cliff Burton was thrown from it. And in the process, the bus actually rolled over him and he was killed instantly. The rest of the band was injured, but survived. It was a tremendous loss for this band and for really kind of the entire rock metal industry. Cliff was the musician of the band. You know, he really cared about his craft. He was not a metalhead guy just looking, you know, to rip. I mean, he had an appreciation and a background in all kinds of music. You know, I think Cliff was going to be a big part of this band evolving and this band expanding beyond just a thrash metal project. So very shortly after this happened, the band got approval from Cliff Burton's family to move forward. They said, yes, that's what he'd want you to do. And very quickly hired Jason Newstead as their bass player. And Jason Newstead walked into a very difficult situation prior to Injustice for All. He, he's actually born and raised in Michigan. He was a, a farm kid. So this Midwest farm kid joins these guys that, you know, two of them are from San Francisco and one of them's from Denmark. So walking into not only this kind of interesting collection of people, but this band that was extremely tight and, and three guys that had, you know, been through, you know, a couple of wars and back together, not to mention we're just coming off a very tragic loss of a family member. And Jason has to kind of walk into this situation and figure it out. And thus begins a lot of the conversation around and justice for all. So why don't we uh, go ahead and get to the nerdy deets, which are done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! You want some dirty deets? And justice for all was Metallica's fourth album. It was released on September 7th, 1988. It was recorded over a four-month time period in Los Angeles. Now, the band originated in San Francisco, uh, but they did most of their recording in Los Angeles. And they also utilized the same producer that they had utilized for the previous two albums, which was a chap named Fleming Rasmussen. They actually were going to go in a different direction because Fleming was unavailable originally. So they actually hired Mike Klink, who was the producer of an old album you might uh, remember and recognize called Appetite for Destruction, which had come out, I think, a year prior. And they started some sessions with Klink and Hetfield would later describe these as problematic. Not that Metallica was always easy to deal with, but obviously there were issues with the chemistry between the band and this probably fair to say second choice producer. And then magically Rasmussen became available. And once he showed up, uh, Clink was fired pretty quickly and he had already done some tracks and some initial mixes that Rasmussen didn't really like and the band didn't really like. So new producer comes in and they actually recorded 
two cover songs to kind of get things dialed in that being bread fan and the prince those were two songs by these 70s metal bands out of europe which were very influential on metallica these these were particularly lars and james were were really metal guys you know they were very influenced by you know the two bands that they covered were budgie and diamond head you know these are pioneers of of metal music, most of which was coming out of Britain, you know, kind of in the early to mid seventies. So Rasmussen brought a lot of new approaches to the table, particularly considering some of the intricate tracks that the band was working on. He, he made Lars use a click track, which was something different. And, and I think Lars, I don't know about you nubs, obviously the resident drummer of the old podcast here interested in your thoughts, but I think injustice for all is some of the best drumming that Lars does. Yeah, I agree with that. And the click track, I think was a factor in that Lars does not keep time that well. If you've ever seen Metallica live and he's got such a human feel to his drumming, but he's really not that good playing in time. So the, the, the kicker would be these would be some difficult click tracks to set up when you look at all of the progressions and tempo changes that are on this album. Yeah. You know, you weren't mapping these things out in Pro Tools uh, at the time. And so uh, I'm sure that was a Herculean task just to get those set up. But it, it's a great drummer's album. I, and we'll talk a lot about the production of it because a lot of people take exception to it. But yeah, it, it's 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 probably Lars at his, you know, his, his best chops as a drummer, I would say. Yeah. And that's kind of what the band has said, you know, when they've commented looking back at the development of injustice for all the common theme seems to be, you know, listen, we were just getting better. We were improving, you know, we had the ability and the chops to kind of bring some complexity that, quite honestly, a couple or few years prior, we, we may not have even been able to pull off. So it was an interesting kind of way to record. Jason Newstead recorded all of his bass parts all by himself. Just he and the engineer were present during the sessions. Wait, you, so, you mean there's bass on it? Yeah, right. Exactly. I sure can't hear any. So you're already, and I bring that up because even early on, you know, you're already starting to get some disconnection between the new guy, the bass tracks and collaboration, not just with the rest of the band, but with the project as a whole. There's only one song under six minutes in length. So nine tracks, a lot of long pieces here. There are two songs that are in the nine minute handle. So let's get to the production here a little bit, because obviously this is going to be, it's a big part of the nerdy deeds. Part of what's really interesting about this album from a production sense really comes down to the way it was mixed. Now, the drums have a very unique sound and were recorded in a unique way. And the scoop effect on the rhythm guitars, so primarily James's parts, are just shrieking. I mean, it's, and, and for those of you that don't know what I mean, a scoop effect. On, on an electric guitar distortion is, is one that just completely sucks down all the mid-level frequencies and just jacks up the basses in the low end and jacks up the trebles in the high end. And it produces this really crunchy sound that has almost a bassy element to it. And it's a great sound. It's a great tone. 
but it really is pretty biting and they they really maximize and take this scoop distortion effect pretty far and you heard a lot of i mean dimebag daryl for pantera really utilized that effect and you know a lot of metal bands found a lot of success by doing so because it really chops out the palm mutes particularly for a great rhythm player like hetfield and he's an outstanding rhythm guitarist you can really get a lot of percussive nature and chop nature to your playing. So you got this unique drum sound, you got this unique guitar sound. And when it came down to mixing the album, and this is where, you know, there are a lot of different versions of of how this happened and why, but essentially James and Lars, who, you know, were co-producers on the album were very insistent that the bass parts get pulled way, way down in the mix, almost damn near out of the mix. So all these parts that new guy Jason comes in and probably worked his ass off on and went in there in the studio and tried to play the heck out of as well as he could can barely be heard on Injustice for All. And that is the way the final mix turned out. That is the way the album is still to this day. They remastered the album last year and had the opportunity to put out, you know, a lot of these bands are putting out these new mixes. They didn't want to do it. So even, you know, 32 years later, whatever it's been, they still want to keep it as is. Lars was really the main ringleader for this decision. Now, I have a theory that for some reason, the band has never really owned up to or never really admitted. And maybe it's because it's a bad theory. But, you know, I think whether it was a tribute to Cliff or whether it was a kind of hesitation with Jason, but I think that there was some psychology that played into this a little bit here of the disclusion of the bass within the mix. And if they would have just said, hey, it's a tribute to our you know, fallen band member. And we thought that the bass having kind of an empty presence on here was kind of a little bit of an ode to Clef. I mean, that would have made sense, you know, but they never really said that, you know, they've kind of given a lot of these different accounts of, of what happened, which has kind of made it continually controversial and and a continued debate. There was never really an album that sounded this way before its release. And there certainly hasn't been one since. So it's a very unique listen and a very unique study in that way. The one thing I agree from a technical perspective, taking the bass virtually out of the mix brought such a tightness to this album. When you look at the way the guitars and drums just sort of wrap around each other, nothing is out of place and it's not overproduced. You know, nothing Fleming Rasmussen does is ever going to be overproduced by any means. That would come later with the Black Album. But the, the playing is at a peak for this band the compositions allow for everything to just be so incredibly cohesive. And I think that's probably a good thing that they left the bass so low in the mix. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, if it's not for the production element, you know, we're probably not talking about it right now. And I think a lot of other critics and and people that are kind of looking back at this, trying to assess its importance, probably aren't talking about it either. It's a, it's a very important element. Here's the problem. Uh, you know, for those that questioned this approach, and there were plenty, this thing comes out and it's tremendously successful. And 
critics love this album and most embraced, you know, this unique sound. It was famously or infamously, however you want to look at this, nominated for the Grammy Award in 1989 for Best Hard Rock Metal Performance, Vocal or Instrumental. This award lasted one year. (laughs) After 1989, they split the hard rock and metal categories. And why did they do so? Well, because they created so much controversy by not selecting Metallica for Injustice for All, but instead awarding the Grammy to Jethro Tull, the aforementioned, for their 1988 album Crest of a Knave, which I listened to it earlier today, and it ain't metal. You know, it's a, you got synthesizers and electronic drums, and it's a, it's not even really that good, but, uh, but they won the Grammy. And I think that Nothing Shocking was also nominated by Jane's Addiction, you know, so it was pretty solid field of candidates there. And there was so much backlash really over giving a Grammy with the word metal in it to Jethro Tull that they actually changed the award from that point forward. So it was a one and done award. And then Lars Ulrich hilariously a couple of years later when they actually did win the Grammy for the black album got up to accept the award. And the first thing he said, he, he wanted to make sure he thanked Jethro Tull for not putting out an album that year, which was probably one of the biggest laughs of the night. It's a hilarious story. It's funny that the Grammys, you know, reacted by splitting the category. Anyone who's looking to the Grammys to tell them what, what is great music out there uh, needs to find some other sources like two twins in an album. You know, I mean, we're, we're the source to find out what, what good music is out there. Not the Grammys. Wouldn't you say? I think we're the source for everything. I would say so. I mean, I was thinking maybe we uh, start doing political talk. A spinoff. Maybe we could do some (laughs) other topics. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think we should. My vision is that we become the one-stop shop. We could do an advice show. You could call us for just various forms of advice. Boy, that's that's a horrendous idea. Nubs, I know we have some vivid recollections of this one. What's your uh, what's your wonder story and and recollection around and justice for all? Metallica was a super important band for us growing up. This album was a really vital thing for me in the discovery of just hard rock and metal music, and it all came from our older brother Scott, who was into two genres for the most part. He was into 80s metal <laughs> and 80s gangster rap. Gangster rap, that's right. And mostly West Coast he was into. He was the more West of a West Coast guy. So he had Easy e and NWA tapes right next to his Metallica and Guns N' Roses and whatever else tapes. And one of the tapes he had very early on was Injustice for All. To hear something that heavy and that 
interesting and that progressive. It was lining up with some of the other things I was getting into at the time. But, and I remember thinking, this is like the greatest album I've ever heard, you know? And, and so I was completely hooked on Injustice for All and became a huge Metallica fan for many years. I went and saw them, is it two years ago on the Hardwired to Self Destruct tour? And they were just extraordinary that night. It was probably the best Metallica show I had seen. And they're like in their 50s. And it just reminded me of the, the, the complete greatness of this band. What's your wonder story with Metallica? Well, a couple things. First, uh, you're a part of one of them. I don't think I ever jammed on this particular song with you guys, but I distinctly remember one of sort of the go-to you know, songs where you'd be on drums and the aforementioned Scotty would be on the guitar. I remember you guys would play Harvester of Sorrow all the time, you know? And I remember it was one of those moments where I was like, Hmm, Nubs is getting pretty good at drums because, you know, it's one of those feel songs where you've got kind of the snare hits and, you know, the drums kind of come in and out. And that, that was one of the first moments where I realized that you were getting pretty good at the drums was you guys jamming on Harvester. So I definitely got to give a nod to, uh, to Scotty on this because uh, and Justice for All on cassette tape and Anthrax Attack of the Killer Bees on oh, yeah. cassette tape were, yeah. were two things that I, I really kind of dug into. So the funniest thing fun. too, T, is that Attack of the Killer Bees, it's like a crappy B-sides. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, like you, I, you look back and I rediscovered Anthrax, you know, several years back and it's like a throwaway album. Oh, but totally. It, but totally. it did have that public enemy duet bring the noise which was really awesome bring the noise and it had starting up a posse and yeah, you know, yeah. very when you're eight years old those are some memorable listens right yes and i and the, and the other thing that we have to touch on is our obsession with a year and a half in the life of metallica because 12 13 14 years i mean we spent a couple good solid years watching that just an absurd amount of times. So, I mean, yeah. that, that was damn near like a daily thing for us. Yeah, and it was both parts. We we really loved the recording session parts with Bob Rock and all that. And we certainly enjoyed the tour piece. So it was a documentary that that really got us excited about bands and music and you know, kind of this behind the scenes look that you got at at this band, which they really were entertaining and funny and all that, but man, did we dig into that? I remember we had the double VHS, you know, they used to come in those double VHS sleeves and we were just constantly watching that. I always think of that pretty much whenever I think of Metallica in any way. So one other thing happened and this, this doesn't have to do with injustice for all, but I thought we'd kind of maybe even give it a go here for a second, but Metallica played a part in in one of the funniest karaoke moments I've ever seen in my life. And somebody decided, you know, usually you get people kind of doing Sweet Caroline and Margaritaville, you know, the usual stuff that, that you know, crap in many ways they, that you hear people putting out there. The crowd pleasers, to, the, you know, the, yeah, the crowd stuff. pleasers, the ones that are kind of easy to sing. And at one point somebody decided that it would be a good idea to go up there and give fuel a try. Um, which just kind of, you know, I mean the play, it just, the place lost its mind. It was so funny. And 
you know, I thought before we sort of dig into to the album here, before we really get into Injustice for All, I just, I'm dying to just maybe hear you, you know, give this a go, you know, fuel karaoke. Sure. I mean, look, uh, you know, it's late and, uh, you know, let's keep the energy up. So uh, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear four dots that are going to cue you. And let's see if you can nail this. Let's do what, it. What, do you need to warm up or anything? You want to? No, I'm already fueled up. Oh, well, here it comes. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Oh, you missed it. <laughs> you uh, you want to try it again? Or, I mean, yeah, that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. <laughs> of course. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Oh! <laughs> ah. That was too fast. I don't know. I thought that was pretty good. Let's try one more. Let's try I'm, one more. I'm going to give it a go here real quick. Let's see. Give me fuel. Give me fire. Give me that which I desire. Yeah, Doesn't he do a close. second thing? Doesn't he go sh- like whoop or something? Yeah, the second especially time? live. Like he hits both of them. Yeah, really. No, let, well, you got to hit both of them. Let's see. Let's see if you can. Let's see if you can get it. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a little delay, which will, which will make it even funnier. But, uh, okay, well, you know. We're going to have to end the show now. I can't talk for the rest of the show. Yeah, exactly. My voice exactly. is gone. Well, and the last thing I'll kind of say before we get to the uh, get to the needle drop here is I've always said And Justice for All is kind of the type of album, and I think there are a lot of, particularly metal type albums like this or sort of even more like industrial type albums where I call it, you know, a take a shower album, you know, where after you listen to it, you sometimes it's delightfully dirty, but you just feel kind of filthy. You know, you just kind of feel like you gotta, you just gotta kind of get that film off. I think injustice for all in a very positive way is like that. You kind of kind of just feel a little filthy afterwards. You know, you gotta go, gotta go rinse it off. And uh, I was wondering, do, do you have any albums, you know, that you would categorize as those? I kind of, I kind of have a couple that are along the same lines, but I'm interested. Do you have any take a shower albums? Sure. Yeah. And, and I can completely understand the description of that. The one that stands out to me the most would be Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral. Yeah. That, that's one where it's just like, you know, need a I, shower. Need a I shower love this, but kind of need a shower. Yeah need to rinse yeah i think the downward spiral is a probably a fairly universe and it is i mean it's outstanding i love that album you know but yeah i think you need to shower after downward spiral one of the ones on the top of my list is uh is corn self-titled that their first debut album you know you get to the end of that and you just gotta you just gotta go scrub it out (laughs) yeah yeah that's a good call i think anything by nico or Nitzer Ebb. <laughs> well, well, sure. I think uh, the land of rape and honey by Ministry. I I've, I listened to that a few weeks ago, and it was just like, whoa, that was that was pretty sweet. But let me go rinse off. 
King Crimson Red is one for me. Oh yeah. And just adore that album. But yeah, it's just afterwards it's like, eh, just just feel a little uh unclean. Well, this one, you know, that, that gritty production, it's just so unique and so different and it, and it just kind of, it's delightfully dirty. And, uh, in some cases, I think a take a shower album can be bad. And, And in some cases like this one, I think it's actually really good. All right. Well, showering aside, uh, why don't we go ahead and dig into this thing and, uh, Drop the needle on Injustice for All. Here we go with the track by track. You know, part of the strength of probably any album, you know, I, I can't think of a lot of classic important or if you want to use our terminology on the turntable type albums that don't have great beginnings you know and whether that's track one or whether that's an intro or even if it's track two there's got to be something early that really kind of pulls you in and i can honestly say that the first 30 seconds of injustice for all might be my favorite 30 seconds on anything. This idea of a metal symphony really starts out with something that just comes across as so grand and so symphonic. And it's basically a guitar piece. And interestingly enough, it's a guitar piece that's played backwards, which kind of is part of what gives it that unique sound. I've got it pulled up here. I think it's kind of interesting. Because, of course, somebody out there was able to either get their hands on or construct what this track was like, you know, played normally, played frontwards. So really quick, I think it'd be interesting to hear that because the intro to Blackened is just beautiful and iconic. And it's one of my favorite things. So this is it played forwards. This is how it was originally recorded. Now, that was not on the album. That was what, whether it was Hetfield or Hammett, you know, maybe a combination of the two, that was what was actually recorded in normal frontwards fashion. What they did is they took that track and played it backwards. And that became what, again, in my opinion, at least, is just an incredibly beautiful and iconic kickoff to Injustice for All in the song Blackened.
Now, a string quartet could play that, and it would, you know, it would bring the house down at the uh, symphony hall. Um, so instead, you get, you know, kind of the Metallica version, and, and they did that a lot, you know, but I think that's a great example of where you get this influence that I think the band had that was certainly in a more symphonic classical direction. Then, of course, it goes into this crazy riff and this off-time song, and it's a fantastic opener. Jason Newstead is the only song on the album that he gets a writing credit on, and he actually came up with the main riff. And he said it was one of his favorite moments during his time at Metallica, where they were all kind of just jamming, and Jason showed the band this riff, which was the main lick to black and and Hatfield looked at him and said dude that that riff's good enough to open the next album and Newstead was of course over the moon to hear James Hatfield say that but I think it's the perfect track to open this album it's six minutes 42 so it takes you on a bit of a ride lots of off time stuff some pretty complicated mathy stuff going on, particularly with Lars, because oftentimes the guitar rhythms are staying the same, but the drums are interchanging behind it. And it's, it's pretty intricate. And I just think it's the perfect opener, certainly, you know, helped by that guitar symphony during those first 30 seconds uh, for, for the ride you're about to go on here in and justice for all. I love the intro to Metallica really knows how to make an entrance. Anyone who's ever seen them live, you know, they, they play the ecstasy of gold by Mari Cohn, uh, you know, legendary piece of music before they come out. And it just sets this really incredible atmosphere. Blackened is maybe their best example of that. I love the breakdown in the middle, you know, the do, 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 do. I mean, that, that riff itself could have been, a great song. Right off the bat, you see them using just kind of all of their best tools in their toolbox to compose a, an opening song that gets your attention and holds your attention. And your attention doesn't really stop until the very end of this record. You did a good job with that. You know, you can just keep doing that that uh, mouth guitar thing that you did earlier. That You know, I think that represented it pretty well. You like that? That was pretty good. That was pretty good. You know, continue to chip in with that if there's a if there's a section that we don't play, but boy, what a beauty in track two and justice for all. Kind of tough to, to pick a section on this one. Cause there are a handful that are, um, rather epic. I mean, this thing is a multifaceted track that obviously, you know, nearly goes into double digit minutes, which at the time for Metallica was much longer than they had gone to that point and really sets the tone for, you know, what you're about to get. I think the sections of this are outstanding, a great vocal from Hetfield and you know, really good groove from Lars. I mean, the section we just played and and even kind of the quote unquote verse sections that you hear, I mean, that demands a pretty punchy, you know, nice groove from Lars. And I wouldn't typically say that Lars is a great groove drummer, but I do think he captured kind of the importance uh, rhythmically that this song really demanded for it to be great. 
You know, on this one, it, yeah, it's like choose your favorite part, but I'm not sure it gets any better than Jun, 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 Jun. Like just killer stuff. And you're right, Lars is is kind of pacing the whole thing and making it happen. I mean, they are just so locked in. Just the chemistry that's coming through on this song between Hetfield and Ulrich is just it's just outstanding. Really good. I think a really important track two i mean usually with track twos you're not getting the epics you know usually those come at the end and at this time a lot of people you know put their snappy single you know as track two but obviously these guys were setting the tone that this was going to be a different ride and i just think injustice for all is one of their best songs that they've ever composed they actually shelved it as a live song and didn't pull it back out until 2007, but it's really become, I'm not sure if you heard it at the show you went to at Ford Field, but it's become a a good solid part of their set list again. I've seen them play it once. It's probably good they shelved it. It's a really hard song to pull off. I would have liked to seen them play it when they kind of had the 1988 chops. And, but by the time they kind of resurrected the song, they weren't nailing it like they uh, presumably were back in the day, but still very cool that they added it to the set and found a way to play it again. Track three, which was the second single released from the album and probably one with a little bit more conventional rhythm and timing to it. Uh, This is Eye of the Beholder. Total Jam, you know, I think after the first two, it was kind of nice for them to just kind of pull out something that's a little bit more driving and a little bit more, you know, you don't have to think as much during. It was kind of just more of a fist pumper and one that has a little bit more of kind of a verse chorus verse type of more traditional approach to it. So a lot more stripped down, a lot more straightforward, but boy, it's it's still a puncher. It's still a, it's still a nice one here on side one. One of the things that kind of cracks me up about this album is how long it takes for vocals to come in at the beginning of the song. You know, most songs that are designed <laughs> for radio, the vocals come in really early. And it made me think about, you know, this must have been a challenging album for radio. And it's still extraordinary that there was oh, yeah. even one hit song on this album. But in radio, there, there's a thing called a talk up. And this is where a radio host, you know, starts a song and then like talks over the song to keep the audience's attention during a, an instrumental bit and then stops right before the vocals come in. It's like an oh, old radio technique. It's called hitting the post. Hitting the post. Where, yeah. Yeah. Where you, where you try to hit the post, which was that old kind of yuck, yuck radio bit where you want to stop talking right as the vocals come in. Exactly. Exactly. So I started thinking about, you know, hitting the post uh, for songs off injustice for all. And those would be some long talk ups. (laughs) And so uh, I'd like to give a a crack to right here. I mean, this was the second single off the album. I'm going to give this a whirl here. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. So here's the deal. Here's the parameters. My my radio station is WNAB, 
for my initials. Yours is W W C W B. If you're fine. Oh with man, it. mine's way harder, but right? that's okay. And the job is you, you gotta, you gotta do the talk up here and you gotta, you gotta, as you said, hit the post. So let, <laughs> let, let's see how this would feel to have to do one of these for a Metallica song off Injustice for All. Hey, here we are in WNAB. It's a Thursday night. Man, what a beautiful day it was today. It was sunny. It was warm. It was everything you want here in Southeast Michigan on a beautiful summer week night. What's that I hear? What is that I hear? Is that James and Lars that I hear? Is that Metallica that I hear? Hey, coming at you here, WNAB. Weekend coming up, guys. Weekend is coming up. And we'll be coming at you for the next couple hours with the best of the best of metal. We got Metallica, we got Megadeth, we got all sorts of good stuff coming your way. And before you know it, guys, the weekend will be here. The work week will be over. Weekend, weekend, weekend. WNAP. Here we go. Here's some Metallica for you. Do you see what I see? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I hit it, didn't oh, I? Oh, God. Are you, are you out of breath? I mean, do you need a, you need a break? Yeah, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Wow. That's... Maybe there's a reason why uh, this song didn't get played on the radio that much. I think we just discovered why. All right, are you ready to give it a shot? Oh, man. I don't know if I have enough oxygen. (laughs) All right, coming at you on a two for Tuesday here on WCWB. Hey, it's a nice weather day outside. It's about 60 degrees, partly cloudy. Might have some rain later. It's a 30% chance. But hey, you know, if that means you're sticking in and hanging out with us, that's a good thing. Speaking of, uh, you know, sticking in and hanging out, here we go with some Metallica. Now, these guys really know how to bring the metal. I once saw a t-shirt of these guys that said, metal up your behind. Ouch. Uh, by the way, traffic report. There's a little backup on I-275 North there, down over there at Beck Road. There's an overturned semi, so try to avoid that. Hey, these guys lost a Grammy to Jethro Tull. I bet they want to stick that flute up Ian Anderson's caboose. Here's Metallica. <laughs> you you yeah, get I a, missed it. I, I missed tell you it. what, though, you, I stepped you, on it. I stepped on it. You get an A plus for your talk up, uh, but you didn't hit the post. It's hard said, to hit yeah. the post. I, I stepped on it. Hard to hit the post. I probably would have gotten fired instantly by that if this was 1988. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Well, here's a song that did make it on the radio quite a bit, and to the chagrin of many Metallica fans, also made it onto the television airwaves because it was actually the first ever video that Metallica did and uh, quite a memorable one at that. This is one. That does not much live to me. Nothing is real but pain now. Hold my breath as I wish for death. Oh, please, God, wake me. Very memorable, you know, and probably helped by the video. Um, You know, this is one that I think if you were an MTV kid in the late 80s, you remember this in both the capacity of a song that was kind of something that you had really never heard before to your earlier point, kind of the tightness of some of these sections. And then of course the, you know, rather disturbing nature of the video, which was unlike anything you had seen at that time too. One is a very memorable 
song for most Metallica fans. For many, it was the way they were introduced to the band. And, you know, clearly this album wasn't made with radio airplay in mind. You know, this was not intended to, I mean, it, it, does, it doesn't even really have the, the token three-minute single on it. And I'm not sure if they even saw one as the ideal commercial hit. It was the third release, but it certainly ended up being the most recognized and the most memorable song and one that probably introduced a lot of people to this band. Good example of a video and song being really tied together. It's even 30 plus years later, it's hard to hear this song without remembering and thinking about the imagery of the video. I wasn't a huge one fan. Um, I saw its appeal. A lot of the airplay was for like a radio edit version of it, which didn't quite capture the whole you know, dramatic aspect of the piece because so much of it was chopped out to get to a certain time. When I saw them on the Hardwired tour, they played one and it just was, it was the best song of the night. And again, I'm not even a huge fan of it, but they just absolutely murdered this song live. I mean, it was, it was so huge. And that whole middle section came out in such a thunderous way. And, and it was just an exceptional performance. So that show kind of rejuvenated a little bit of interest in one. And I do think it's a really important song. It's just never really been one of my favorites. It's a tremendous fan favorite live. Every Metallica show, you know, most people note it as one of the more exciting parts of the night. And the band has noted that it's usually the song where they can feel the most energy from the audience. So we're four tracks in. And we proceed here after four extremely strong tracks to open the front half of the album with track five, which is the shortest straw. Taking you back a little bit to more of their thrash roots here. Um, I think most people, particularly when you compare it to some of the other more intricate, more complex, more proggy tracks, this one for most is a little bit more of a dud. I know for, for me, I think it's probably the one that I appreciate the least. But, you know, for those that are really into kill them all and ride the lightning, you know, type Metallica. The shortest straw to me, it's a song I really like. To me, it really shows Hetfield's vocals. I could see how it's it's not necessarily a favorite of those looking for more of the complexities on the album, but I do think it really showcases Hetfield as a vocalist extremely well. The song that showed me at a young age that Nubs might be a pretty decent drummer, Harvester of Sorrow. good example there you know hit rewind if you need to hit hit the old 30 second button there on your mobile device a really good example there of that scoop guitar tone i mean when when he's palm muting there you can really feel that bass effect you kind of understand a little bit of what hetfield may have meant by the bass you know sort of stepping on or you know not allowing that 
rhythm guitar scoop effect to breathe, but it really comes out during that particular section on Harvester of Sorrow. This is a, a real jam with nice dynamics, pretty straightforward. I would say this is another song on Injustice for All, probably only one of two that does have a little bit of a verse chorus pattern to it. So a little bit more traditional in structure and in kind of overall rhythms. Really like this song. I think it's a great one to have on the back half of Injustice for All. One of my favorites on the album as well. The song stands out to me. I always think about they show a clip of the band playing this song in Moscow, which in 1991 and 92 was a huge deal that Metallica went and played shows in in Russia. And this song just seems to fit perfectly with the imagery of the crowd and just the, the vastness and the huge deal that it was that Metallica went and played shows in Moscow. And so, um, yeah, it, it's a really, really well done composition. And yeah, it doesn't have the dynamics that let's say Injustice for All has or some of the other epic tracks in the album, but it's got a really strong chorus. But I think the verses are really what this song is all about. I mean, that riff for the verses is so crunchy. And and again, Hetfield's vocals really shining on top of it. It's That's it, one of my favorites on the album for sure. Track seven is The Frayed Ends of Sanity. I got to say, T, that this could be the song that lost them the Grammy. Because that that OEO opening is so stupid. It's so incredibly stupid. And it, it sucks, too, because it's, it's a pretty sweet song outside of that. But it's like, what the hell were you guys thinking with that intro? Yeah, they kind of picked a interesting... I mean, if that was a little bit of a sense of humor moment uh it sort of doesn't fit you know i mean this is a very you know this isn't a bright album this isn't one that you necessarily pop in when you're looking to you don't need comic relief on this yeah yeah yeah, exactly so um so yeah i hear you on that probably this and shortest star probably the you know two of the songs that are a bit more on the kind of weaker side but yeah it does have i I think hetfield is is very mighty in this one robert their new quote-unquote new bass player said was one of his favorites as a metallica fan and he actually you know, during his first few years with the band was just harping on them to play this. And they actually did. They dusted it off after presumably a couple of decades and uh, incorporated it into a couple of their tours. So, you know, there's certainly a, a certain Metallica fan that that likes this, but probably this and Shortest Draw, two of the weaker points. You really go to some strength here in a song with a really interesting story tied to Cliff Burton, To Live Is To Die. Some pretty good Kirk Hammett right there. Um, this is an instrumental track. This is a nine and a half minute instrumental. And part of what makes this really interesting is writing credit includes Cliff Burton. And what they did is they took, um, these aren't his actual bass parts, but they took some parts that he had kind of written and jammed on and sort of demoed prior to his death. 
Jason Newsted actually performs the parts, but they were written by Cliff. Second to last track, clearly, you know, paying homage uh, to Cliff Burton here in a song that he actually contributed toward and gets some writing credit for. And I'm sure that this song is, um, you know, special to the band for that reason. And let's go ahead and close it up here. The final track of Injustice for All, track nine, Dyer's Eve. And there it is. That's that's how Injustice for All closes. And it's it's funny the way even that last note, the compression and production and all those things just make it such a quick cutoff point. And it's it's almost it's almost like a blink of an eye. It's it's done before the note even you know finishes. So Lars's drumming on Dyer's Eve is outstanding. It's a it's a real you know, kind of blazer there to close it out. One that kind of has some thrashy elements, but is more intricate with a lot of the double bass work and some of that, you know, metal groove that you're getting. It is the shortest song on the album at 517, but a nice way to wrap it up in a way that's kind of quintessential Metallica, but also gives you some of those more proggy complex elements within. I do love just the way it closes. I mean, just kind of that stop on a dime thing because it's a signature part of this album is everything kind of stops completely, whether that's a palm mute guitar note or whether that's the end of a song or the end of a section or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's full of like sharp starts and sharp stops and so to end with that kind of trademark is is quite fitting. I agree with you. Kind of an appropriate way to to really just kind of close the door on Injustice for All. So, Nubs, 1988's prog metal nine-track adventure, Metallica's Injustice for All. Did this one matter? I don't think so as much as the other Metallica albums did. I mean, it's a great musician's album. It showcases Metallica at its most interesting. I I will absolutely agree to that. But in terms of does it matter, it's, it's hard to say that this album matters as much as the Black Album or Master of Puppets and some elements of Ride the Lightning. I mean, I think with Metallica, if you're going to look at kind of what can capture a new audience or what will sustain the most, I think you're probably looking at some other items in their catalog. So I think to a select group like you and I, you could say this album matters tremendously. But overall, if I had to rate it, I would say it doesn't matter uh, compared to the rest of the material that's that's in kind of the Metallica sphere. What do you think? Does it matter? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I think that it certainly medium matters just from the standpoint of it was a very innovative album at the time. Now, I'm surprised that the production element really hasn't become more of a, a case study because, I mean, this album was super successful and could have just been great songs that no matter how you polished them up, this thing was going to cook. But I'm, I'm surprised that this production technique wasn't mimicked, you know, and even on Metallica's next album, you know, with Bob Rock, which ended up being even more successful, you know, they went in the complete opposite direction with shorter songs, more verse, chorus, verse, middle type of structure. 
and a very lush layered, you know, production that clearly for those songs, you know, really worked. So, you know, I don't think if Bob Rock produced Injustice for All, it would have worked as well. And I sure don't think that if, you know, the the team that worked on Injustice for All did the Black Album, it would have turned out as well. So, you know, props to the band for being able to kind of know what's going to be the best fit for their composition. It is pretty amazing to think that one album later, they were making Nothing Else Matters and The Unforgiven. Part of what also happened after this album is Jason Newstead did eventually leave the band in 2001. He was interested in starting a new project with this kind of side project he had called Echo Brain. And the band, James in particular, just really fought him on this. It was basically like, you know, you're in Metallica, you're not going to go do side projects. Probably in hindsight, um, and certainly from an outsider standpoint, it seems like they were being a bit unfair to Jason. You know, um, Lars and 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 Kirk and James all were starting families and kind of at a different life stage than Jason Newstead was. And, you know, they were taking long breaks and doing other things. And Jason was saying, you know, I'd like to continue to be creative and, 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 and maybe even be in a band that's doing a little bit of something different. And the band just really fought him on that. And Jason got pissed off and basically one day said, you know, if you're not going to let me do this, I'm going to do this on my own. And, see you guys later obviously you know they picked up robert from suicidal tendencies who seems to have been a really good playing fit and probably an even better you know personality fit for the group and all of that is documented nicely in the some kind of monster documentary piece but yeah jason new said this probably was kind of the beginning i'm not sure if there was ever a point where he got comfortable or was truly accepted by the band, but certainly did not get off to an ideal start here in 1988 with him. And I think that it was, you know, the beginning of, of a somewhat, you know, drama filled and somewhat tumultuous 13 years in, in that band for him. As we get to the final cut here, um, really interested to kind of see where Injustice for All falls for you. Is it uh, on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or are you putting this one in the for sale bin? What do you got on the final cut here, Nub? Justice for All for me is collecting dust. There's songs on it that I listen to very regularly. But as an album top to bottom, it's very important for me to have in the collection. I, I have the recent super deluxe box, which has this completely ridiculous amount of material on it. You know, it's got like five live albums and demos and outtakes and all that. So owning the album is, is something that's important, but in terms of how frequently I listen to it, it's more of a collecting dust type of record. Where does the lineup for you T where's your final cut? Give me fuel, give me foul, give me that which I desire. Ooh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to, I just had to give you one more. Um, Love it. For me and justice for all is on the turntable. And, you know, I apply the same standard here as I did for check your head with the beastie boys. And that is with a band that has the catalog that Metallica does and a band that's as important as they've been when it's this easy as it is for me, if you could only pick one album that you had to take with you forever, it's a really easy pick for me. 
and I love the black album and I love puppets and, you know, I even like some of the, you know, stuff they've put out in the, in the last several years, but it's not a difficult choice for me because I just think injustice for all captures the band in a really interesting, vulnerable, complicated time period. And some of the intricacies, and you can understand this from a prog standpoint, are just continually interesting to me. I think the production is fascinating. I've never heard another album that sounds like this. There probably hasn't been and probably never will be. I just think there's so much uniqueness to this. And the composition was so thoughtful and so complex yet easy to absorb. For me, it's an on-the-turntable album from a band that if you lined up all their records and said you can only take one with you for the rest of your life, I'd pick up Injustice for All and it wouldn't even be that difficult. Wouldn't even have to think twice about it. So with that being the uh, criteria for the decision, I'm putting it on the turntable. Well, now that we've gotten some anger out, why don't we uh, calm it down a little bit here? as we always do. And Nubs, I will ask you what's in your head. In your head, in your head. Yeah, let's get Dolores one more time here. Come on. Yeah, I'm not a one and done. Let's go two and done. In your head, in your head. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Days of the New, which is an, uh, a, I don't know if you call it a band, which is a project that, I know you and I are big fans of, I'm a huge Travis Meeks fan. I, I think he's like a genius. I just don't know where the hell he is and what he's doing right now. I wish he'd reconvene days of the new and make some more music. And I want to shout out really quick to our buddy on Twitter. Travis Meeks is overrated. Yes, his, that's his right. Handle, but that's I've right. had some great uh, dialogue the last uh, couple of weeks with uh, one of our, uh, one of our great, one of our favorite listeners out there. So Shout out to you, buddy, on Twitter. Absolutely. And he was in my mind, too, when, uh, when choosing Weapon in the Wound. Oh, uh, great one of song. My, yeah, one of my Ingerheads this week. It's off the green album, because, you know, every album had, like, a different color and a tree on the front. So Weapon in the Wound by Days of the New. Beautiful uh, the, song. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Uh, the Cure Love Song of uh, mm. Disintegration, you know, one of the band's biggest hits. I think that was kind of maybe the high point of the cure, just that whole era and really love that song. You like the three eleven version of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. I don't, I don't hate it. I know some do. What do you think of the three eleven version? I think it's kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, My it's, favorite cure cover though, was dinosaur junior doing just like heaven. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a good cure cover. Yeah. That's yeah. That's well played. That's a very good call for sure. And then uh, lastly would be uh, a, a good summer band for me, Urge Overkill, Positive Bleeding, which was yeah. one of the singles off Saturation. T, what is in your head? Boy, those are nice choices, buddy. I like all three of those. Um, uh, Brian Vander Ark, who was the front man uh, of the Verve Pipe, has a song, uh, you know, he, he did some solo work and uh, has a, a really pretty song called And Then You Went Away, which... There's a studio version of it that's great. There's also a live version out there where he kind of riffs at the end and and kind of goes into a, a singing bit of uh, The Police, King of Pain, and, and does it over the top of this tune, and it's really cool. Uh, so, And Then You Went Away, great song by Brian Vander Ark. 
formerly of the Verve Pipe, which was a great band, a great Michigan band there. Uh, the second is uh, Patty Smith Group. This is Frederick. Probably my, I mean, I'm a huge fan of hers. I, probably my favorite song of hers, kind of a more of the, you know, I like when she got kind of upbeat and a little bit, uh, you know, sort of poppy there. But uh, big fan of Frederick, which was the opening song on, oh boy, what album was that? Wave? I think it was on Wave. It was on Wave. Absolutely. Nice call. Boy, you're on it today. And and hey, what year did Wave come out? Ooh, okay. So that, now this is just going to be a, an educated guess. Let's see. Horses came out in 70s. 1980? 79. Oh. I thought I was going to bait you into saying 78 again like you did at the beginning. Yeah, of the oh, yeah. Yeah. So, and then uh, my third song is you had mentioned Yes Talk. Um, as being kind of a summer album for you and which is a great pick. One of the great songs on there is I am waiting, probably one of my favorite yes songs, but you know, talk great record from that Trevor Rabin era there of yes. It's a real beauty. Great song by yes. Hey, listen, um, appreciate talking Metallica with you. You know, this was a band that, uh, was was early game for us as far as getting us into music and getting us jamming and, you know, watching the documentary and learning about the band and kind of a fun one to discuss and certainly a lot of unique and intriguing elements to this as far as production, composition and all that. I enjoyed talking about it with you. Really enjoyed it too, but I got to tell you, my my neck is hurting me from all that headbanging. Oh yeah. Well, shoot, you know, you got to be careful with that. You need to go ice it down. Well, you know, a little headbanging is good for the soul. Absolutely. When's the well, last sir. time you? When's the last time you actually really? I, I think if I tried head banging now, I I probably need an ambulance. Oh, I I'd pass out. Yeah, I think the last time I head banged was probably at the Metallica concert in, you know, nineteen ninety four. Yeah. Well, maybe next time we see him, we'll we can try it. We'll stretch out beforehand, but we can try it again and see if we can do it without hurting ourselves. Stretch out a little ibuprofen afterwards. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks, buddy. And uh, listen, uh, you know, subscribe to us and tweet to us, just like the great Travis Meeks is overrated on Twitter does. And hit us up if there's an album you're interested in. Or in fact, I think Metallica was one that got requested from a listener to us. Uh, so you know, continue to keep those coming and let us know what you're thinking. And thanks everybody for tuning in here on episode nine. And we'll be back with episode 10. We're going double figures here on two twins and an album. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.